this morning. It's great. Love to hear your voices. Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. It's just a great morning of worship to come together as the Church of Christ and to praise our glorious God and to remember what He has done for us. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the letter of Jude? The back of the New Testament. We're coming to the end of Jude's letter this morning, although I'll have one more supplementary sermon next week, kind of an appendix to the book on some difficult passages that are in Jude. Um, but we're going to come to the end of our systematic walkthrough this morning. And the passage before us this morning is rather short. It's only two verses, verses 24 and 25. But it's a very buoyant ending to the letter. We remember that Jude, what I love about Jude is he tells us what his point is. I remember, you remember English literature classes back in high school? You had to always like discover like the theme and the, 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 the mood and the, like the purpose, the thesis. I, man, it drove me crazy. In English, cause nobody, nobody was very like direct about it. It was all subtle, right? You gotta figure out what the, what the main idea is. And it was like, I don't know. This is some weird writing. I can't figure it out. Jude's my kind of guy cause he tells you right up front what he's writing about, right? Verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's his main point. He was going to write an encouraging letter about the salvation that we all have in common through Jesus Christ. But a crisis, a crisis brought on by scoffers and false teachers in the various churches where Jude carried influence, motivated him to draft this short letter exhorting the church to contend for the faith. Now, in our study of the book of Jude, we have answered, we've tried to ask and answer three questions that are related to this purpose. We first asked, who contends for the faith? Who is to do the contending, right? And we, we, we were talking about the fact that Jude doesn't really identify here who these Christians are based on where they live, right? Paul wrote the letter to the church at Thessalonica, to the letter to the church at Corinth, to the uh, church at Philippi. He wrote to churches in geographical locations, and certainly Jude's church, churches maybe, were in geographical locations. They lived somewhere. But Jude doesn't identify them by where they live. He identifies them by their spiritual identity, their identity in Christ. They are, he said back in verse, verse 1, those who have been called by God, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. So they were those who had a relationship with God. God had brought them into a relationship with Himself. They were dwelling in His love. They were abiding in His love. God had brought them into the realm or the bubble of His love, and now they were abiding in the sphere of that love through Jesus Christ. And they were being kept in that fear in that bubble for Jesus Christ to be the reward that the Father would give to him on the last day. And of course, the point for us, the application point for us is that that we're just like these first readers of the Scripture were. The first readers of Jude's letter, when, when Jude is talking about them, he's also talking about us. Because we also have been called by God. We are beloved in God. We are kept for Jesus Christ. We share in the same identity. We too are called and equipped to contend for the same faith that they believe. We have the same purpose as they did. We next asked ourselves, well, why do we contend for the faith? Why is it essential to contend for the faith? And we said that at the time that the reason why we contend for the faith is because there's only one faith. And we have received this faith that has come down to us through the gospel. This faith is a gift given to us by God, and now it has been entrusted to us as a stewardship. 
This is the one true faith that is the only hope for the world. Therefore, it must be defended. We also saw from Jude's argument that we contend for the faith because all other faiths are condemned. There are, there are no multiple ways to get to God. There are no many paths that we have to just kind of figure out which one we should be on. There are, there's only one faith. All other faiths are condemned. And so much of Jude's argument in verses 4 through 16 are to illustrate the eternal condemnation that these scoffers and false teachers deserve because they have deviated from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And third, we ask, well, how do we contend for the faith? How do we contend for the faith? This was sort of the the meat and potatoes of the letter. This is Jude's main instructional point, verses 17 to 23. Jude exhorted the church to contend for the faith by doing three things. First, he says, stand on the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is our authority. It's how we are able to defend the faith. It's what we contend for the faith with. We also contend for the faith by continuing to abide in the love of Christ. We don't go off and follow other distractions, but we keep ourselves in the love of Christ. And he says, finally, that we're to, we contend for the faith by showing mercy to those who are wavering, to those who have apostatized, And even to those who are scoffing the faith, to those who are attacking the faith even. So not only must we defend the faith against attacks, we must also go on the offensive and contend for the faith, seeking to bring those outside of Christ into a saving relationship with him. Well, now as Jude draws his letter to a close, there's one question left remaining. If the church is going to contend for the faith, if we're going to engage in this daunting, strenuous, and wearying task, complete with battle scars, who will contend for them? Who will contend for us? Who will contend for the faithful? Who will aid them? Who will sustain them? Who will guard them? Who will give them victory? And Jude answers that question in the final two verses of the this letter with what we call a doxology, a word of praise to God. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. It's one of the longer doxologies in the New Testament. It's one of the most beautiful passages in not just the New Testament, but all of the Bible. But it answers that question for us. Who contends for the faithful? Let's read it. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Friends, it's God himself who contends for the faithful. That's the purpose of this sermon. God contends for the faithful. And in this doxology, Jude highlights here both why God's people praise Him, and how they praise Him. So as we try to answer this question, I've already given you the punchline, right? I've already given you the simple answer. Who contends for the faithful? Well, it's God. Well, let's consider two additional questions. Number one, how does God contend for the faithful? And secondly, why does God contend for the faithful? Let's consider the first question first. How does God contend for the faithful? We look at verse 24. And notice how that begins in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude identifies the object of his praise simply as him. 
And we know, of course, he is referring to God. But Jude doesn't just say, praise the Lord, although that would be sufficient, right? We said that this morning to start off the service. Praise the Lord. Said it multiple times. But Jude's going to go on and talk about the Lord and why he ought to be praised. He identifies God mainly by his redemptive activity, what he has done to save his people. And Jude uses a series of four descriptions of what God has done for us as an explanation for how he contends for us, for us and why we ought to praise him. So how does God contend for the faithful? Well, first, he, can, he contends for the faithful by keeping us from falling away. He keeps us from falling from the faith. Now, notice in verse 24 that Jude uses the word stumbling, which literally means to fall down. And the word pictures here a person who is tripping over some kind of obstacle, is walking in, like I often do to myself, I don't see something and I trip over, right? A block or, or maybe one of the kids' toys or something, right? There's something in the way, there's some obstacle and I, I trip over it, I lose my footing and I, I fall to the ground. Well, the Bible uses that imagery of stumbling to refer to a moral fall, oftentimes we're using it in a way to describe someone who has fallen into sin. But it's also used to describe the ultimate stumble, apostasy or falling away from the faith. Now again, the context of Jude, there were false teachers who were proclaiming a different gospel, and that was leading some to stumble. We saw that back in verses 22 and 23. There were some who were wavering. They were caught up in this confusion, not knowing how to respond. Do they stay abiding in the love of Christ, or do they, do they stumble? Do they go off and, 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 and into some other faith, or do they abandon the faith altogether? There were others who had already taken the plunge into apostasy. They had already abandoned the faith and were, were living outside of Christ, living in a way that was totally foreign to what they understood the gospel to be. But all these things that occurred were, happened because the false teachers were, had laid an obstacle to the faith by the false teaching. And so some had stumbled over that false teaching, had stumbled over the scoffing and the, the, the malignancy, maligning the faith as they were talking and teaching. Apostasy refers to a deliberate and willful departure from the faith. So when one commits apostasy, he is walking away from Christ, he is walking away from the gospel, he is abandoning it all together. Now, a Christian doesn't commit apostasy simply by sinning, right? The scripture is clear that Christians will continue to sin as long as we live in this world. That's not what we want. That is not our hope. That's not what we strive for. We ought to hate sin. We will repent of sin when confronted with sin. We will experience God's loving, corrective discipline. But there are still going to be times when we sin. And yet, what do we do when we sin? For someone who is truly converted, they will acknowledge their sin. They'll confess that sin before the Lord. They will repent of it. They'll accept God's loving and corrective discipline. Then they will strive to keep walking in step with the Spirit so as not to sin again. But sin is an unfortunate reality for the Christian as long as we live in this world. It shouldn't be what we desire to do, but it is a reality. Apostasy is not that. Apostasy is not when you sin one time this week. Apostasy is, more generally speaking, those people who seem to have received the gospel, but then have totally turned their back on it. They have abandoned it. They eagerly received it. They readily received the gospel when it was proclaimed to them. They believed it, but then at some point later they abandoned it altogether. It does not mean that a person has lost his salvation, 
But it really indicates they had no salvation to begin with. This really goes back to Jesus' parable, the sower, the second and third seed, that seem to, on the outward appearance, give some kind of receptivity to the gospel. It seemed to be signs of faith, but something happened. Either there was persecution, there was some, uh, some difficulty, some challenge, or perhaps it was getting entangled in the weeds, the, the sins of this world, and it, it caused them to wither out and die. So they exposed themselves for not being a true seed, someone who had truly believed the gospel. Well, Judah's warning here, Judah's writing to warn Christians who readily and eagerly embrace the gospel, who had been integrated into the life of the church, but are now entertaining the false teachers and considering leaving the one true faith that they had received for an imitation. And Jude warns them in this letter, do not stumble, do not commit apostasy, but remain, keep yourselves true to the one true faith and contend for that faith. Now, how does God contend for the faithful? Well, He keeps us from falling from the faith. In fact, the main verb in verse 24 is the word keeps. It captures the, the main idea here that Jude wants to convey. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. That word is keep. That's the main idea here that Jude is trying to get across, that God keeps. The word keep means to keep safe, to guard, to protect. This is what the shepherds were doing on Christmas night when they were out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks, right? They were keeping watch over them. They were guarding them. They were keeping them safe when the angels announced the news of Christ's birth to them. It's also what the householder does to, the, to his house. When a strong man attacks him, Jesus gave a parable in Luke 11:21. When the strong man comes in seeking to bind the, the, the householder and plunder the house, the, the, the householder steps in, the man who owns the house steps in and he keeps guard over his house and he, he attacks and, and repels the strong man. Well, the word keep here points to God's infinite power to guard and protect and preserve and keep safe those who have put their faith in Christ. And Jude's doxology here reminds us that God keeps and preserves those who are truly his own. In fact, Jude opened his letter with this reminder in verse 1 when he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. At the very beginning, Jude here is communicating to them, you are kept, you are safe, you are guarded, you are preserved as God's people. God is keeping us for Christ, it says in verse 1, so that He will give us to Him as His reward for His sacrifice on the last day. Now, in the midst of contending for the faith, there might be the fear of stumbling. Or there might be the temptation to stumble. There might be the discouragement that others have already fallen away. But what Jude is bookending his letter with here is the truth that God keeps His own from stumbling. So at the very beginning, before he even tells them, go contend for the faith, he wants them to know you are kept, you are guarded, you are preserved, you are kept safe. And now at the very end of the letter, after he said all that he wants to say, he says once again, God is the one who keeps you. He is the one who guards you, protects you, and preserves you. Now the doxology's promise here that God keeps us from stumbling doesn't in any way mitigate the command that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Back in verse 21, you remember that? He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
That as we're contending for the faith, that one of the things that we are to do is to keep ourselves in the love of God. We keep ourselves in the love of God when we are abiding in Christ. When we are growing in our spiritual maturity. When we have aligned ourselves with God's will. When we do God's will. When our concerns and expectations are for our future hope and glory. And not in the cares and concerns of this world. Keeping ourselves in the love of God just means keep on keeping on. Doing those things that God has called us to do in Christ by the power of His Spirit. But Jude's doxology also makes clear that the only way that we are able to keep ourselves is because God in His mercy and kindness towards us keeps us from stumbling and falling away. Jude says that God is able here in verse 24, to keep you from stumbling. That might sound like it's only a possibility. That he, he can do it. There's no guarantee that he will, but he can. That's not what this means. This here is more than a statement of potential. But it is a declaration of what God actually does. It is not merely that God has the power, but that he actually does keep you from stumbling. Brothers and sisters, this is a certainty that the believer can count on. That we, if we are truly in Him, that if we are believing the gospel, that we, have, that we are contending for the faith, that we are walking in a manner worthy of our Lord, a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, if we are keeping ourselves in the love of God, that God is already superintending that by keeping us in His love. God is keeping us from stumbling. And this is truly a reason to praise God. One of my favorite poems or ditties or whatever, from Spurgeon, regards this point. He says that if it should ever come to pass that sheep of Christ could fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. Friends, if we could stumble, we would. If we could lose our salvation, we would. If the keeping was left totally to us, we would indeed stumble. But brothers and sisters, we are not capable of keeping ourselves and so God keeps us God is the one who keeps his people so how is it that he is contending for the faithful he keeps us from stumbling secondly God contends for the faithful by making us stand in his glorious presence God makes us stand before his glorious presence now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He presents us before his glorious presence. The word presents in verse 24 there literally means to make one stand. And this is what I love about the imagery here. Standing is the antonym of stumbling, right? Opposites. It's the opposite of. Standing is the antonym of stumbling. So if you're stumbling, you're not standing. And if you're standing, you're not stumbling. So Jude's word picture here is one of someone who is standing on a firm foundation with two feet planted firmly on the ground. He is steady. Reminds me of what David said in Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That's what Jude is talking about here with the word uh, uh, present. Present. He's making us to stand before the presence of his glory. Now, the church was greatly concerned about this. Being in the faith was a particular concern of the early church. 
especially in the face of the assaults believers face through persecution, doctrinal error, moral temptation, and satanic attack. And so for this reason, we see many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to stand fast in the faith. Just one example of the many that we could point to. 1 Corinthians 16.13, where Paul says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now Jude notes here that it is God who makes us to stand. And he makes us to stand because, again, we are unable to stand on our own. But Jude's emphasis here is not just on God's ability to make us stand in this life. His concern is that God makes us to stand before Him. That on that last day, God will make us to stand in His presence. It says, Jude says, before the presence of His glory. In other words, Jude is looking to the future and he sees us standing before God on the last day before His throne. On the day of judgment, God will make us to stand before Him without fear and without judgment. We will only stand because God has caused us to stand. So God makes us to stand before His glorious presence. Third, how does God contend for the faithful? He presents us blameless in His presence. God presents us blameless in His presence. This goes with the last idea of presenting us, of making us stand before His glorious presence. How does God make us to stand? He makes us to stand blameless. In fact, the reason why we can stand before God on the last day in the presence of His glory is because God presents us to Himself as blameless. Now again, we do not stand before God because we are naturally blameless, right? The Scripture teaches just the opposite. We are unrighteous sinners full of blame and guilt. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So apart from God's intervention, we would stand before God on the day of judgment condemned because we are full of blame and guilt. We have accrued blame and guilt to ourselves because of our sin. And being the holy God that He is, God must judge the guilty. Because of our guilt, there is no way that we can stand before Him. In fact, we deserve the maximum sentence of His justice. But Jude here gives praise to God in verse 24 because God makes us to stand before Him blameless. How are we able to stand before Him blameless? God's done all the work. God graciously did everything that was necessary to make us blameless before Him. In fact, this word blameless in verse 24 is an important word because in the Old Testament, it's the word used to describe the sacrificial animals. Those animals that could be offered as sacrifice had to be blameless. No spot, no defect, no discoloration. Right? Nothing unusual, nothing abnormal. Must be the perfect, meet the perfect specifications to be offered as a sacrifice. And of course, all of those sacrificial animals point us to who? They point us to the blameless sacrifice that God would offer on our behalf. The only one who is truly blameless, Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, came to earth. He was perfect in deity, but He became a man taking on human flesh. He lived a truly blameless life, completely perfect in every way, and yet He died 
the death that all of us deserve to die. Because he was the sacrifice that God was providing on our behalf. The blameless one suffered for our blame. He bore our sins and suffered our punishment. To publicly declare then that God had accepted his sacrifice, God raised him from the dead and set all things under his authority. And now those who will repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ are incorporated into this one, this blameless one. It's because we've been incorporated into him that we are truly blameless. You see, on the final day of judgment, when we stand before God, the Father will see us as blameless, not because we are, but because this blamelessness of His Son, the righteousness of His Son, will be applied to us. He will, we are found not in ourselves, not in our sins, but we are found in the blameless One who suffered and died on our behalf. We have no righteousness of our own to stand on, We cannot stand blameless before God, but Christ, by His death, has imputed His righteousness to us. And so when God sees us, He doesn't see our shame and our guilt and our sin. He sees the blamelessness and the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the truly blameless one. And so this reality that God would make us to stand blameless before the presence of His glory just causes Jude to well up in praise to God. God is the one who makes us to stand blameless before His presence. How, do we contend, how does God contend for the faithful? He does so, last part of this, He does so by imparting to us eternal joy. God contends for the faithful by imparting to us eternal joy. And the word that joy uses, or that Jude uses here for joy in verse 24, is a rare word, and it means unbridled jubilation. It's the word that is used to describe John the Baptist when he was still in his mother's womb. You remember that story when Mary went to go visit Elizabeth? Mary pregnant with the Christ child, Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptist. And when, they, when the two mothers met, it says that in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaped for joy. It's the same word. This joyful, unbridled jubilation, knowing that he was in the presence of the Christ. It's the same word used to describe the nascent church in those early days after Pentecost to worship and fellowship together, Acts 2, 46. When the church gathered together, they were assembling together with great joy, worshiping in the temple courts and fellowshipping with one another because the gospel had come and had arrived in fullness. And now they had been been imparted this mission to go and to make disciples of all nations. This word, exultant, jubilation, great joy, is most often used in the New Testament to speak of the exultant joy that occurs at the heavenly banquet, at the eschatological end-time celebration when God's people have fully and finally experienced the reality of their salvation. That's what Jude is referring to here. It's that joy that we receive at the very end. It's an extreme joy. It's a full joy. It's a heavenly joy. It's a divine joy. One writer says it's a joy and an experience that properly belongs to heaven. Now, despite the struggle of contending for the faith, God is working among his people to give them supernatural joy. Isn't it a blessing that one of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives is joy? That even when we had a chaotic week, when it seems that the world was coming after us, it seems when we couldn't get out of our own way, that God would give to us his Spirit to produce in us great joy. And yet, Jude is also here looking at the fact that 
That's just simply a taste of the great joy that will be ours when God presents us blameless before the presence of His glory at the very end. It's just a taste. In the midst of the fight, God gives us a taste of that joy, but it will be sweeter and fuller on that day. And so God contends for us by giving us eternal joy. And we should praise God for this joy. Well, Jude ties all of these redemptive attributes of God together under the title of our Savior in verse 25. Notice he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that word, that phrase, our Savior, is normally applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But it is used eight times to speak of God more generally or in reference specifically to the Father. And of course, in the Old Testament, the Israelites oftentimes referred to God as their Savior. He was the Savior of his people, Israel. And so what Jude is describing in verse 24 is the essence of salvation. And he attributes all of this work to God, God our Savior. Because it is God who saved us. It is God who is saving us even now. It is God who will save us by keeping us from falling, by making us to stand before him, by presenting us blameless before him, and by imparting, us, imparting to us eternal joy. This is the work of salvation that God our Savior has accomplished for us. So God our Savior contends for us while we contend for the faith through his ongoing work of salvation. As we're out there battling and fighting, contending for the faith, God is contending for us by continuing to do what he promised he would do, by completing the good work that he has started in us by his ongoing work of salvation. And so we, like Jude, as I'm so thankful this morning that just the tenor of this service goes right into this, it's all about praise. We are to praise the Lord as Jude praised the Lord because of the work of salvation that he has accomplished in us, because of the work of, of salvation he is accomplishing in us right now, and because of the work of salvation that he will accomplish for us on the last day, all through Jesus Christ. God contends for the faithful. Well, why? Let's ask that last question. Why does God contend for the faithful? In verse 25, Jude says that it is to this only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, there's really only one answer to the question, although we want to flesh it out a little bit more. Why, do we, why does God contend for the faithful? God contends for the faithful so that he might receive eternal praise. God has done all of this so that we might praise him. That is our purpose. I'm thinking a lot about your purpose in life. What am I here for? What am I supposed to do? Your purpose as a creature that he has created in his image and as one who has received salvation being made now into the image of Christ, being a new creation. Our purpose, our mission is to praise this God, this wonderful God who has saved us. In verse 24, Jude identified the saving activity of God on behalf of his people. Those people are those who are the ones who are contending for the faith. But in verse 25, he's now moving to the attribution of praise. And Jude's doxology here provides an insight into the reason why God has acted in the way that he has. He acts for our benefits, ultimately so that he might receive praise and glory. Scripture reveals clearly the glory of God's attributes. It was wonderful this morning to hear those at the very beginning of service, those, those scriptures of praise. Those were all scriptures that were talking about who God is, attributing 
the wondrous glory of God's attributes, right? And who He is and how we are to praise Him. God arrays Himself in all of His attributes. He expresses His essential qualities in all that He does. The display of God's glory demands praise from His creation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Even when there are so many people this morning who are doing anything other than being in church, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth His handiwork. But not only have we, have we been created to praise Him, but especially for those of us who have been recreated, those of us whom God is conforming into the image of His Son, those whom He has redeemed and saved, we are to praise Him. There is no one like Him. That is our purpose and our mission, to praise the Lord. And we, above all people, should be first in line. It should be the, the beating desire of our heart to praise the Lord. And Jude's doxology here expresses very briefly, yet very powerfully, the praise that we should be eager and busy to offer to the God who contends for us. And in verse 25, Jude notes here four attributes that are particularly praiseworthy. Jude could have gone on a long, long string. But there are four things here that, that we can ascribe to the Lord, attributes that are worthy of praise. He says, first belongs glory. First, be glory. Glory belongs to God. The word glory here is referring to the radiant nature of God's being. We might think of it as the, the display, the, the manifestation of God's attributes. I like to say the glory of God is when God's godness is on display. When who He is, is, is manifested, is displayed. One brother explained it to me that God's glory is when God shows up and God shows out. Right? God revealing Himself. God manifesting Himself. Putting His attributes on display. But glory can also refer to the public reputation or fame of a person. In this case, referring to God's reputation or fame. When God expresses himself publicly, that expression demands a response. And the result, then, is the public declaration and acclamation of God's glory. When we glorify God, we are giving God public praise. We're giving praise to him in the sanctuary, how fitting it was to start our service this morning with Psalm 150, a declaration that we, in the sanctuary, as the people of God assembled together, as few as we are, would give praise and glory to God. We are giving praise, public praise, in response to the public display of God's attributes. And for a church contending for the faith, God's glory is a reminder that all else pales in comparison to the God who has saved them. The next attribute Jude mentions here is the word majesty. Majesty belongs to God. In a very similar way, majesty is like glory. It denotes God's greatness and splendor. It highlights his regal status, his status of a king. And in some ways, majesty here is repeating the thought of glory. So Jude is doubling down, if you will, here on God's glory and emphasizing God's overwhelming grandeur. God's majesty emphasizes to Jude's readers the importance of not turning away from the one who saves them, right? The one they serve, the one whose faith that they contend for is the one who is seated upon his throne, highly exalted, arrayed in glorious splendor and deserving the praise of his people. So for a church contending for the faith, God's majesty is a reminder that God is king and that their allegiance is ultimately to him. The third, we have dominion. Dominion belongs to the Lord, to God. 
Dominion emphasizes God's power and authority, His sovereign rule without limitation. God's sovereign power establishes His reign. His rule has no boundaries. Wherever anything exists, there God exercises dominion. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, so eloquently stated it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is no place you can go in this universe where the Lord is not the sovereign authority. He has dominion over every square inch of everything that exists, of everything he's created. And so for a church contending for the faith, God's dominion is a reminder of his, and therefore our ultimate victory, that God's kingdom will reign forever and ever. That's why we read the Daniel passage in our pastoral prayer, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Victory belongs to him. And so, necessarily, those who belong to him will also share in his victory. How do we know that we'll be victorious in contending for the faith? Because our God has dominion. Dominion belongs to him. Then finally, Jude says, authority belongs to God. Authority, like dominion, points to God's total and supreme sovereignty. He rules over all creation, bearing the intrinsic right to rule over all things. It's not just that God is the most powerful it's not that God won a struggle among all the gods that have ever you know, been noted, noted or, or praised in history and he was the one who made it. No, he has the authority is the right to rule. God has the right to rule. God has the right to exercise dominion because authority belongs to him. So God alone possesses authority to do as he pleases and no one can oppose or thwart him. And again, for a church contending for the faith, God's authority reminds us that he goes before us and his sovereignty superintends our work. So what we do to contend for the faith will never fail. We may not see the results of it. We may not see how it's actually working out. But there is nothing futile in what we do to contend for the faith. God's sovereignty superintends our work. And so these attributes properly describe God and then become the motivation for our praise. And Jude also notes in verse 25 the duration for which God should be praised. Right? And in short, God should be praised for as long as He is still God. How long should He be praised? Before all time and now and forever. Right? So as long as God is God, He should be praised. And here's the good news. God does not change. God does not change. And since He does not change, brothers and sisters, His praise should be eternal. God must be praised before all time and now and forever because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always possessed glory and majesty and dominion and authority. He continues today to possess glory, majesty, dominion and authority. And he will forever possess glory, majesty, dominion and authority. God is God. And since eternity passed, he has manifested his glory. And throughout every generation, God has manifested his glory. And for the ages yet to come, God will manifest his glory. Before you were ever born, God received praise from His people. With every breath of our lives, we ought to give praise to God. And after our lives are snuffed out in death, a new generation will continue to praise God until that day when all of God's redeemed gather around His throne and give Him ceaseless praise, the praise that He is worthy to receive. And Jude finally notes in verse 25 that Christ is the mediator of our praise to God. 
We can only praise God because of the work of Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus ultimately are the grounds of our praise to God. If we had not received God's salvation, we would not praise God. But Christ's death and resurrection not only gives us something to praise God about, it enables us to praise God by opening our eyes to the greatness of His glory. And Christ even now continues to act as our mediator. And we know He's the mediator for the forgiveness of sins, right? Our sins continue to be forgiven because Christ paid the penalty for those sins over 2,000 years ago. We know that He intercedes for us when we pray, right? He is our intercessor. He is he is making our requests and our needs known to the Father so that the Father would, would give to us that which we need. But Christ also mediates our praise to the Father because everything that we now do is in Christ. And as it is Christ's aim to please and glorify the Father, so we also please and glorify God through Him. Because, brothers and sisters, it's, through, it's in the face of the glory of Jesus Christ In the face of Jesus Christ, we have seen the glory of God. And now in the person of Christ, we offer glory to God. So God contends for us so that he might receive the glory. Because of the astounding grace and love that he has shown to us, we must join our voices with Jude's and offer the praise that God deserves. And this is where Jude ends with a call to his first readers with a call to us who now follow them to agree with him in his words of praise. He ends the doxology and thus his letter with that simple word, Amen. And amen's not there a trite word. It's not just something you tack on at the end to say, I'm done. But the word Amen comes from the Hebrew language and it derives from the word for truth. So Amen is an affirmation of truthfulness. In this context, Jude tacks on Amen as an exclamation point to the doxology. It is the way that, you know, today in computers you can mark some things. You can write, hit a couple buttons and you can bold and italicize and underline and highlight. That's what Amen does to not just this doxology, but the entire letter. Jude is bolding and italicizing and highlighting and, and, and underlining the truthfulness of what he has just written. And Jude wants his readers also to affirm its truthfulness. He wants them to understand the truthfulness of what he has written, and he wants them to agree with him that it is indeed true. He wants them to concur with him, to offer their voices in agreement with his. Let me just ask you, do you agree with what Jude has spoken? Will you offer the same praise that Jude offers to God here? Do you see how God has contended for you? how He is contending for you, and how He will continue to contend for you as you contend for the faith that He has entrusted to you? Do you see His salvation at work in you? Do you see your destiny in Christ? Do you see what He has actually done for you so that you will be able to stand before Him blameless on the last day? Will you give praise to God? Will you give Him the praise that He deserves and the praise that He is worthy of? Dear friends, let your heart and your mind and your strength and your voice proclaim fully the praise that rightfully belongs to God. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all of God's people said, Oh, come on. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we do say Amen to what Jude has written to us this morning. Because, Lord, we acknowledge its truth. We acknowledge that His portrayal of who You are is accurate, it is true. That You are the sovereign God, the God who possesses all glory and majesty and dominion and authority, the God who has worked redemptively in our world and in our lives to save us, to keep us from stumbling, to make us a stand blameless before your presence, to give us great joy. God, we praise you. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be ones of ceaseless praise, that as we've gathered corporately for that purpose today, that that would continue to be ingrained in us, the necessity of gathering together each week to do this very thing, to keep praising you. And Father, to go forth from this day in our, in our lives individually, in our families, as we gather again midweek in Bible studies to make sure that we are praising you because you are worthy of it. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would hide your word in our heart so we might not sin, sin against you, so we might be able to stand before your glorious presence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.